get guidance. The record keepers will figure some stuff out. We'll get planning tips, but really by late summer, you know, you got to have a pretty good idea of how you're going to deal with this with your clients. I'm Brian Anderson with 401k Specialist, and this is the 401k Specialist Podcast. Anyone in the retirement business knows the new Secure 2.0 legislation has brought with it plenty of questions and confusion about its 92 different provisions, and that advisors and plan sponsors are scrambling to figure out what they need to deal with sooner rather than later as a result of the varied implementation dates of the wide-ranging provisions. Today, we're lucky to have one of the industry's go-to resources for anything fiduciary-related here to help us shed some light on some of the more pressing issues resulting from Secure 2.0 in Pete Swisher of Group Plan Systems. The independent fiduciary for group retirement plans has been knee-deep in analyzing the new legislation since it came out last December, including helping Group Plan Systems to create a quick reference guide covering the 10 highest impact provisions, top five new burdens, and a summary of all 92 provisions. Now he and GPS are back with a brand new resource detailing the startup credits provision in Secure 2.0, which we're going to talk about in a minute. First off, welcome back to the 401k Specialist Podcast, Pete. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. All right. Uh, Before we get into the startup tax credits specifically, can you give us a brief overview of how Secure 2.0 has been keeping you extra busy since December? Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of 2019. So, of course, in 2019, we were all waiting had been waiting for four years for a bill that was going to pass any minute now, which was RESA, and then it became secure. Um, and then all of a sudden, we got it at this in this year-end funding bill, and uh, same exact thing has happened again. <clears throat> and uh, as then, uh, I have spent the time since, um, at least partially, analyzing the provisions and trying to figure it out. And um, it's amazing how hard it is because there are in fact 92 provisions and it's a massive piece of legislation. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump right into the plan design for startups. I've heard you say that advisors need to get their back of the napkin version down to help plan sponsors make sense of the complicated startup tax credit provision. Do you have any tips for advisors about how to integrate the credit and teach it to generalists? You know, I think there's going to be a need for some education here because it really is going to change the conversation and the conversation is already complicated. You know, I I got introduced to plan design years ago when, you know, I was I was in a meeting with a client who had two businesses and his wife had one business. He had the other and she had, you know, three employees and he had 15. And so they were going to put all their contributions in the wife's business because that was it saved them money. And of course, you can't do that. There's coverage. They were a control group. Um, and, but there's just so many rules and it's complicated. And these, the, the secure 2.0 stuff, um, affects that. And the credits are a good example. It's not super straightforward how you apply the credits. Uh, and I think the advisors are going to need to be able to just sort of whip out, oh, um, the client's going to say, what's it cost me? And that's not a simple question. Um, and they're going to need to be able in the back of the napkin to say, well, you know, there are caveats. You got to talk to your accountant, but um, you're probably going to get a credit of about 3,500 bucks. And here's what the charges are. Here's what your employer contributions are. Here's what the credits are for that. Here's how it changes over time. These are credits. So you're still going to have to write a check for seven grand, but you're going to get back 3,500 of it. It's that kind of a conversation. That's to actually do that um, fluently, easily with a client in a conversational way, back of the napkin. That's an art. 
and um, uh, I think it'll take a little practice. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I just want to note uh, we've got a we're going to have a new story posted about this new resource you've created. It's going to be posted on four one k specialist along with a uh, link that'll take you directly to that resource as well. So listeners might want to check that out. All right. Um, at the uh, at that recent Viking Cove Institute Leader Summit, you spoke about uh, one group in particular that is sure to be substantially impacted by the coming wave of Secure 2.0 provisions. That's the HTPTS crowd, which stands for, uh, say that fast five times, uh, which stands for high turnover, part-time and seasonal workforces. So what kind of struggles do you foresee for this group? Well, and I, I uh, you know, you, we get all these abbreviations and acronyms. So we've got LTPT, long-term part-time, and I'm adding HTPTS. That is my own invention because I wanted to come up for a way to describe this. I know I'm giving some people PTSD with all of this, but um, the uh, high turnover part-time seasonal, another way I describe this is the 30%, and it might be more than 30%, but my experience has been there's a certain percentage of employer who follows a plan design designed to exclude as opposed to designed to um, encourage participation. And it sounds worse than it is. It's, uh, you know, if you have a business where you have a thousand employees or a hundred employees or 10 employees for that matter, and a lot of them are um, very high turnover. And this is a common thing in, for example, hospitality, retail, construction, certain types of manufacturing, um, agriculture, these types of businesses might have a core group of employees who are their long-term, you know, key part of their workforce that they, they would do anything for. And they have folks who just come and go in a revolving door who are not loyal, and they think differently about that group of people naturally. And um, they like to have plan designs that um, reward their loyal employees and exclude those who don't fit in very well or who aren't there long time who aren't loyal. And the law only allows that to a degree, but you, they do things like um, extend eligibility as long as possible, extend entry dates. Uh, they tend not to do safe harbor contributions. They, they use exclusions. So you might have a, a location or a division or a job classification be excluded from participation. So it's a more exclusive approach versus just saying, hey, let's let everybody in. And the, the new LTPT rules combined with for new employers or for new plans, the, the auto enrollment mandate is just going to make it a lot harder for those types of employers to deal with this, um, you know, heavy burden of a rotating workforce. Okay. Um, hey, I've also heard you talking lately about how advisors need a secure implementation plan for clients. Can you tell us a little bit about this and what advisors would need to include in such a plan? Well, first of all, I think that's going to evolve and it has to evolve based on guidance in part. So there are things here that we just don't know. And the long term part time is a good example of that. We have uh, there are questions still open from Secure 1.0. So, you know, if you look, you look at this rule, it it comes out with Secure 1.0. But the first implementation date is really next year. So we have this weird scenario where 2024 uh, you have to apply the Secure 1.0 version of the long-term part-time employee rule. And then starting in 2025, we employ the uh, the new Secure 2.0 version. So it's a three-year rule for 2024 and a two-year rule for 2025. Well, the record keepers are going to have to figure out how do they program this stuff in. 
But there are also questions about, hey, when you do exclusions, does that trigger some different treatment under LTPT? Um, and the IRS and the DOL both need to answer questions like that. And then the record keepers have to program it. And only then will we be able to say to a client, hey, here's how let's deal with this. But in the meantime, there are folks who are, who are coming up with uh, ideas. For example, let's just go ahead and be more inclusive and let's figure out how to deal with that. So let's just make everybody eligible because 2024, one rule, 2025, another rule. I'm a new employer. I, I don't even want to have to figure this stuff out. I've got auto enroll starts in 2025, but wait, I have to do uh, plan amendments in 2024 to enable that in 2025 and throw up your hands and just say, you know what, let's just go now with a you know more inclusive, more automated design and figure out how to implement that um, as efficiently as possible. And so to, to circle back to your question, there's no one answer to what should your plan be. Um, but over the course of this year, we're going to get at least some guidance. Um, I predict that required guidance will eventually materialize, but much of it will be late. That is my prediction. Um, but we'll get guidance. The record keepers will figure some stuff out. We'll get planning tips. But really, by late summer, you know, you got to have a pretty good idea of uh, how you're, how you're going to deal with this with your clients. Right. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, well, it's uh, before we wrap up here, it's hard to talk to Pete Swisher without asking about pooled employer plans or PEPs and MEPs. Any news on this front? You know, I think um, early on, so with Secure 1.0, we had uh, the, the tension between plan designs. On the one hand, the folks who were believers in the MEP or PEP design, and on the other hand, those saying, we don't like that design for whatever reason, we're going to go with a group of plans. And there was a lot of attention on that. And, you know, in the marketplace, of course, we have lots of non-MEP uh, marketing bundles and exchange a multiple employer aggregation program, a MEAP. You'll hear, you know, th these are invented terms, but they're useful. And um, so do we go with something like that or, or do you use the, the PEP? So the problem with the PEP is the um, uh, there's nowhere to hide for the pool plant provider. The, the, uh, the rules make you um, embrace the full scope of fiduciary duty with very minimal opportunity to push anything back to the employer. Um, it has consequences for pricing. It has consequences for cannibalism for the big record keepers. So there are uh, perhaps problematic for record keepers in many ways um, from a business standpoint. And I think, therefore, if, if you're on the industry side, uh, there's a lot to like about the flexibility of a group of plans. I and I would argue there's advantage for the employers statutorily that you can't get any other way than in a, in a pooled employer plan. Um, but there is still that tension. But here's the key takeaway is that the wait and see period is over. So um, there were folks who were on the fence saying, let's just wait and see how this plays out. And I think that, that that's done. I think there are folks who have made their decision Either I'm not going to do a PEP today or, or at all, or no, we're going to get involved in this. This is going to be part of what we do. And I, I tend to prefer something I control more rather than less. And so people are exploring ways to do that. So I think the proliferation of MEPs is beginning. And um, that doesn't mean they'll take over the universe by any stretch. 
There'll be lots of other programs, but <clears throat> I think this year we're going to see a lot of new programs rolled out. All right. Well, Pete Swisher, that's just what we're looking for. Thanks for joining us today on the 401k specialist podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian.